If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. You know, you got the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, followed by Acts, which is the sort of the story of the Holy Spirit's work in the church, and then the book of Romans. Uh, Let me also say, though, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers and all of you who are like a mother to someone. I'm super thankful for you. I know it's already been said, but I wanted to add my well wishes for two reasons. Um, One, because I have such a profound level of respect and admiration for for mothers, uh, seeing how, much like John Kirkpatrick's story, uh, my own mom, you know, brought us to church, me and my sister, every week uh, by herself. And there was never, ever any question on Sunday morning, what are we going to do? We were going to be with God's people in church, and I'm thankful for that. And then my kids have an incredible mother that I'm so thankful for. And so, and I know the impact that good mothers can have. And so I'm thankful for you and uh, just encouraged by you. And a second reason that I wanted to uh, say Happy Mother's Day as well is to let you know uh, that I do know that it's Mother's Day. And I say that because when I ask you to turn to Romans 1 for the beginning of a new sermon series, you might think, well, wait a second. Does, does he not realize this is Mother's Day? I mean, why would you start a new sermon series on Mother's Day? And, and furthermore, why, maybe you're expecting to have a sermon on just how awesome moms are. Well, I mean, I believe moms are amazing, um, but uh, I just can't wait to get, couldn't wait to get this thing going. And the other thing is, I mean, I think, and I wanted as many people as possible here as we kick this series off, because I really believe that what's going to happen over the next weeks and months is going to be life-changing. Not, not because the preaching is going to be so great, but because the text is so great. And I, and I really believe, and the Holy Spirit actually testifies to this, that when the Holy Spirit attends to the proclamation of his word, it is transformational. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if this is something we look back on years from now and say, you know, God really did a work in my own heart and life during that time. You know, many Christians have never heard a sermon series through the book of Romans. I've never preached through the book of Romans. Last week I said I don't really know why. I actually do know why. And that's because earlier in my ministry, I wasn't ready for it. I just wasn't ready. Uh, But now I believe this is where God is calling us to go. And it's also interesting how few preachers have actually preached through the book as well. I mean, my my favorite preacher, at least my favorite living preacher, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he's still active in ministry today at 75 years old. And he said he only took one church in 50 plus years of ministry through the book of Romans. So I only had the occasion to do that one time. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was, in some regard, one of the greatest preachers ever, if not the greatest preach, preacher ever, uh, was at Westminster uh, in London in the, in the mid-20th century. And he'd been there for many years. I think it was 13 or 14 years. And one of the parishioners came up to him and said, when are you going to preach through Romans? And he said, as soon as I understand Romans chapter 6, I'll preach through it, but I don't understand it now. Now, he would later understand it, and he would actually preach through Romans through 372 sermons. We're not going to do that. Um, We're going to take a much shorter route, uh, but we are going to spend considerable time uh, in this book. Uh, Romans is a difficult book. It's, It's very confrontational. It's dripping with God's mercy and the grace that we just sang about. Um, it will make us uncomfortable at times. It may make us angry at times. I don't know. 
I'm not going to say that I'm nervous about it, but I have asked myself a couple of times, why, why are you doing this to yourself? Why would you do this? Uh, but I, it's, it's intimidating, but I do take some comfort in the Apostle Peter's words in 2 Peter 3. Concerning Paul's writing, he wrote, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, there are some things in his letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So I'm going to try very hard not to fit that description. I don't want to twist the scriptures. Um, what makes this book so challenging, along with some of the very deep theological matters, is it really does confront us uh, with uh, some very clear moral teaching that addresses many of the so-called hot uh, topic, hot-button issues of our day. Sexuality and gender identity, homosexuality, heterosexual lust, racial, di racial division and ethnic hostility, uh, the sanctity of human life, obedience to the government, the future of Israel and the end of the world, legalism and Christian freedom, even though it was written some 2,000 years ago to a church some 5,000 miles from here, it is still incredibly relevant. In fact, we could even say more relevant than ever. The point of the book, though, is, is more needed than ever, specifically that salvation comes by faith in Jesus and not by works. There is a righteousness that comes by faith apart from the law, Romans 3 says. The righteousness of God is by faith and not by works. In contrast to every other religion in the world, Christianity is about an acceptance by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which we're going to find is more controversial than we might imagine, but even more comforting than we ever dreamed. And all I ask you to do, and what I'm praying for my, myself as well, is let us let the text speak. Let us approach this with an eagerness to hear what God says, not tell God what we think He ought to say, but to actually listen to what God says. This morning as we set up the series, we're going to look at the person, the promise, and the purpose. As you know, I'm not huge on alliteration, uh, but I couldn't resist. What can we learn from the person, that is Paul himself, the author of this letter, uh, from the promise, which is really the foundation of this letter, and also the purpose. So uh, let's get into it. Romans chapter 1, and I'll read the section we'll cover this morning, which will be verses 1 through 7. Here is the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you can see already there's a lot in there. I mean, it's very, very dense. Um, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul. More on him in a minute. But I want to first consider the context of the letter because unless we understand why it was written, 
uh, to whom it was written and what was going on at the time it was written, uh, we're never really going to understand it uh, fully. And so let's look at that this morning. Have you ever talked to someone who is from New York? I mean, they, they were born in New York, they grew up in New York, they live in New York. Well, you know, you, you'll see if you talk very long, they really believe that New York is the center of the universe. And why in the world would anyone want to live anywhere else than New York? Now, it's not just like that. I mean, you, you hear the songs about New York and you hear the affection from the people who talk about New York. It's not just New Yorkers who feel that way. In fact, if you look at people who are from just about any major city, they were born there, they grew up there, they feel that way about their city. Think about the people of Los Angeles. Was out there for a while. And, and no, the people in Los Angeles believe that the world revolves around that city. Why would anybody in their right mind ever live anywhere than Los Angeles. This is the way, you know, it's perceived out there. And again, we could say that about a lot of cities. Spent a lot of time in Chicagoland. People in Chicago believe this is the greatest city on earth. People in Dallas, I mean, oh my goodness, people in Dallas, they really believe that Dallas, that, that anything that's ever happened that's good and significant, it happens in Dallas, right? A friend of mine, in fact, my very first college roommate, who's from Minnesota, Minneapolis, just returned from Dallas, and he's normally a very calm guy, from what I can tell, but he was all sort of amped up by what he called the pathological Texas overconfidence. That, that's, that's his phrase, not mine. So if you're mad about it, I'll give you his email address, not mine. But that's what he said. And you think about that with cities, and of course it's not just like that, and even in cities in America. Spend some time in Athens, Greece, and if you go to Athens, you will soon find uh, that the people there, Athenians, believe that every great idea that's ever infiltrated anybody's mind, it definitely started in Athens. Now, why bring this up? Well, if we travel back in time some 2,000 years to the middle of the first century when Paul wrote the book of Romans, and we, we would find that no one has ever loved their city the way that the people of Rome loved Rome. Their city was considered to be the true epicenter of the universe, and in many ways, it actually was. Rome was the center of an expansive empire that extended as far south as the coast of Africa and as far north as the Danube River. It was massive, and the emperor, and really all the governors and leaders of Rome, they wanted to continue to expand Rome's empire to the, what they considered to be the uttermost parts of the earth. In fact, a quick story on that, in AD 58, which is about a year after Rome, the book of Romans was written, uh, there was a man named Tiridates. Tiridates was the king of Armenia. And uh, there was a little strip of land that used to be part of Armenia that, that was under King Tiridates' reign, and it had become occupied by Rome. And he became really upset about this, King Tiridates did. He thought, this belongs to us. And so he decided that he would take it back by military conquest. Well, the Roman general Corbula heard about this, and he was outraged because of what he said was an affront to the grandeur of Rome. And so what he did is he sent troops, not just to preserve that strip of land so that it would remain in the Roman province, but what he did is he went and killed every adult in Volandum, there in Armenia, took all the children to sell as slaves, and then he burned Armenia's capital, 
uh, Artaxata, all the way down to the ground. So there was nothing left but ashes. Someone came along and they asked General Corbula, well, why didn't you just, you know, why didn't you just fend off the, the troops and just preserve that area for yourself? He said it could never work that way because the preeminent glory of Rome could never be threatened. For citizens of Rome, Rome was everything. And here's why. And this is going to be really important as we work our way through this book. Here's why it was so important because they believed, the Romans believed, that they had experienced such incredible success because of the Roman gods that they worshipped. And they believed that the fact that they, had, they were expanding and taking over the world as it were, this was all because of a direct result of the blessing of the gods that they worshipped. Now, there were hundreds of gods. There were three main gods. There was Jupiter, who was uh, regarded to be, in some ways, sort of from uh, Zeus. He was the sky god who, Romans believed, oversaw all of life. And then there was Jupiter, I mean Juno, rather. Juno was Jupiter's wife and sister, which they didn't find awkward at all. Um, But Juno was the protector of women. So you had Jupiter, who's kind of over you know, in some ways over everything. Uh, Juno was a protector of women. And then there was Minerva, who was the goddess of wisdom and craft. And Minerva was the one who looked after children and also, you know, uh, day, day laborers like craftsmen, tanners, and stonesmen. And here's the thing about these gods, which is so important as we get into, well, especially the second half of Romans. These gods were not concerned about morality, They didn't care that people were good people or bad people. All they cared about was that they were worshipped in their particular way. What they cared about is their particular rituals, their religious rituals uh, were honored and adhered to. Now when I say what they did or they didn't do, what they cared about or they didn't care about, I'm talking about how they were perceived, of course. I mean, they weren't real so they didn't actually feel any certain way, but I'm talking about how they were perceived. And so as a result of the God's perceived lack of concern about moral, ethical behavior, how do you think things went in first century Rome? Well, it was a place of complete moral degradation. Because if the gods don't care, why should the emperor care? If the gods don't care, why should the governor care? And so at the time of this writing, first century Rome, um, again, morally, just unbelievable. There was violence everywhere, uh, sexual exploits of every kind, from homosexuality to incest to public stuff. So, you know, you'd watch when you had your kids around. Divorce was rampant. Child abandonment was a daily thing. Uh, Abortion was prevalent. Suicide rates were sky high. It was, again, a culture of depravity. And this was because, at least partly, because the gods were not viewed to really care about morality. And in the middle of all this, so think about that scenario I just described, there was a Christian church, a church, a group of believers who followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they met in a few different locations in Rome. As I mentioned, Rome was fairly expansive. And we can kind of surmise that they met in five different pockets of Rome. Um, One body of believers who gathered in different locales. And this church was, by all accounts, very diverse. In fact, we might even say it was eclectic. Uh, Mostly Gentiles, but still plenty of Jewish believers. 
brand new Christians along with folks who were brand new to their faith, I mean, who were mature in their faith, rather, um, different levels of education, vastly different levels of social status, and yet unified in their faith in the risen Christ. Paul didn't start the church at Rome. He'd never been to Rome at the time of this writing. Peter didn't start it. The book of Acts uh, chapter 2 tells us that at Pentecost, which happened, of course, you know, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, there were, there were visiting from Rome, this is Acts 2, 10, visiting from Rome some Jews and proselytes. So these were, um, a proselyte was a Gentile, was a non-Jewish person who had actually embraced Jewish religious customs. So there were some Jews, ethnic Jews, some Gentiles, those who had embraced Jewish customs. They went to Rome. They were there at Pentecost. By the work of the Holy Spirit, they were brought to saving faith. They returned back to Rome. They began meeting together as believers. At that point, they were called followers of the way. And then other people started to join in. God brought other people to saving faith, and the church began to grow. The church began to expand. Uh, add more and more new converts to Christianity. And we'll see when we get to Romans 16, actually some of the names of some of the people in this early church. So we're in Rome, first century, it's the middle of the first century, the mid-50s. There's this Christian church made up of people from all different backgrounds. Now, they were, they were mostly poor, uh, hardworking people, some Gentiles and some Jews. Talk a lot more about this as we move on, who didn't necessarily care for one another. Um, and together, they're seeking to honor God in a culture that is, again, polytheistic, which means poly means many, theistic gods, many, many gods, morally debased, everything you can imagine is going on all around you morally, racially and ethnically tense, so it's a very charged environment, and one that is status-driven. So your status meant everything. You could be a slave or a freed slave or in that case, there were slave owners and there were people who were in different places in terms of governmental and society. So there's all of this going on. And at the time of this writing, Christians are struggling with how do we live in a society where all these things are going on around us, where there's such moral degradation and every value that we're told to hold is actually mocked and flaunted. And they were in, a, again, a culture where appeasing the gods by obeying their religious rituals, by worshiping them in a certain way, was the key to having a good life. And Paul writes this letter, meant to be read aloud to the, the Christians who were gathering in Rome, and he will encourage them, verse 5 that I just read, to exemplify the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 tells us that uh, this letter is written by Paul, Paul was, uh, as some of you know, he was a Pharisee. He was the most devout of all the religious uh, leaders and teachers. Um, he was, by his own admission, better at keeping the law than just about everybody else. He says this in a couple of his letters, particularly Philippians. In fact, it was because of Paul's devotion to the law, the Jewish law, that he believed he was supposed to snuff out Christianity, which was regarded as a threat to the Jewish uh, religious customs. So Paul's a guy who at one point hated Jesus, and he hated Jesus' followers. And in fact, he was all about, and he was able to do this because of his position of authority, he was about persecuting Christians and actually presiding over the killing of Christian, 
So if you've ever thought to yourself, you know, what I've done is just too much for God to forgive. What I've done is beyond the scope of God's forgiveness. You can take a look at Paul, who was a blasphemer and a murderer and a hater, hater of Christians and Jesus himself. And he's on the road to Damascus and he's confronted with the risen Christ in a blinding way. And Jesus brings him to faith. And then Paul becomes the greatest you know, church planter, Christian church planter in history. And he's heard about the Christians in Rome and he wants to visit them. He's not, not been able to do that yet, but he wants to encourage them in their faith. So he introduces himself as Paul, a servant of Christ, literally in the Greek, a doulos, a slave of Christ called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, there are a lot of really good preachers, guys smarter than I am, who make the point here that by calling himself a slave, what Paul is doing you know, foremost is he, is he is humbly placing himself under his readers, under those that he would serve and minister. In other words, they're saying this is an act of extreme humility. And it is true that Paul was a very, very humble man. In fact, he would say uh, in Ephesians 3, he would call himself the least of all the saints. But that's not what's going on here. This is not what that's about. Uh, What Paul's doing here by calling himself a slave to Christ is showing that what he is doing is not of his own accord. In fact, he belongs to Jesus. His ministry is on account of and dependent on Jesus. Charles Cranfield writes of the word doulos, this term expressed the total belongingness, total allegiance corresponding to the total ownership and authority of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is confessing at the very own, I belong to Christ. There's nothing I can do. I can't save myself. I can't save anyone else. I can't have any effect in ministry. I belong to Jesus. I can't accomplish anything in my own power. He is saying he's totally and completely dependent on the one who sent him, that is Jesus the Christ. Now here's our first point, and they'll come more quickly than this first one did. A proper view of self as a fully dependent being is essential for recognizing the beauty of grace. And so, so much of this letter will speak to how we as believers ought to see ourselves. But unless we really understand, unless we start with this foundational reality, we are totally and completely dependent upon God and His grace for everything. We need God for everything. Not not just to win people, not just to be obedient, although we'll talk much about that. We need God for everything. Our very survival, our sustenance is anchored in our absolute need for God. It's a bit whimsical, but as the reformers used to say, if God stopped thinking about us for a second, we would cease to exist. And that's kind of the nature here, that we're absolutely dependent upon God for everything. And we need that understanding or we'll never fully appreciate God's grace. There was an article published um, 2019, as I recall, and it was called The Shifting of American Values. And the article pointed out that what used to be cherished values in North America, uh, like, for example, religion, uh, getting married, having children, patriotism, and the article goes on, 
says that those values have significantly diminished. And then with COVID and, and some of the stuff that happened there, it's just sort of expedited uh, our departure away from what was once cherished values. Well, that's really not a surprise, I don't think. And, and I can actually think of some of the values that used to be treasured in our society, which really aren't valued very much at all. Think about honesty. Honesty used to be a very treasured value. And now, rather than that, I think we, what we really treasure is cleverness. It's not, just, it's not the honest person that we really look up to. It's the person who can lie but get away with it. It's the person who can, can continue to deceive and so on. Unfortunately, in our society, that cleverness has become even more cherished. Um, sincerity you know, it used to be a really big deal. It used to really value earnestness. And now sarcasm has far trumped that particular virtue. And so the people we think are the greatest are the most sarcastic, the ones with the most biting humor. Um, a concern for the greater good, which has now become, we talked about this the last couple of weeks, an obsession with self-actualization and how I'm perceived. But there's one, one American value that has never, ever declined and will never, ever decline. As Americans in particular, we cherish, almost more than anything else, our independence. We don't want to be dependent on anyone for anything. But of course, the irony is we're not really independent at all. We like to believe we are. We don't want to depend on anyone. We don't want to need anything from anyone. But the reality is we're not independent at all. We're dependent on good weather for crops, natural resources for our sustenance, good health for our livelihood, the, the approval of others for our happiness. We are very dependent people. And this is to say nothing of our dependence on God for our salvation, which will be a theme that runs throughout this letter. We are all inclined to believe that we can become good people if we just try hard enough but Romans will alert us to the fact that we can never, ever be good enough. And until we realize just how hopeless and truly bad we are, the grace of God will mean nothing to us. So Paul sets up the rest of this letter by saying, I am a slave to Jesus Christ, which is not first about his humility. Please hear me. He was very humble. But it's first about his who he belongs to. It's his absolute dependence on Jesus for everything. Now let's look at the promise. So that's the person, the promise in verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6, by the way, it's all really one long run-on sentence. It's not at all how kids are taught to write these days, uh, but this is kind of the way it unfolds. Um, but it is effective. Paul's making the point that the Messiah the Jews had expected had already come. He was born from David's offspring, verse 3. That is to say, he was of the line of David, which was a qualification of the Messiah. He is, the rightful, he is a rightful heir to the throne of Israel. He was of the flesh. That is to say, he was truly human. Verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't the Son of God before he was raised from the dead. It just means that he was raised to a position of power and authority that he didn't have in the same way during his earthly life. It's just another way of actually saying what Jesus himself said, you know, in the Great Commission, where he said, all power and authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Now, what are these references to? 
These are references to the kingship of Jesus. In fact, his very name, Jesus Christ, which Paul uses uh, four times in this brief section. Christ, as you know, you've heard a hundred times maybe, that's not his last name like Smith or Jones or Brown or Williams or whatever. That's not, it, it's actually a title, the anointed one. He is Jesus, the anointed one. He is Jesus, the anointed king, and his kingship was confirmed by his resurrection. Here's our second point. The prophecy of old has now been fulfilled. Jesus is the reigning king. We live in a democracy, which we really treasure, you know, and, and I think for good reason. Talk about cherished values. One is certainly our democracy. You know, don't, don't threaten that, right? It was Winston Churchill who famously said that democracy is the worst form of government except all those other forms of government. So it's kind of a clever way of saying, yeah, this is kind of the best we can do is democracy. Well, as much as we rightly celebrate democracy, the universe is not governed by a democracy. The ultimate form of government in the universe is actually a monarchy. There won't be votes to determine how things go throughout eternity. No lobbying, no stumping for positions. Later in Romans, we're told that one person will decide the eternal fate of every person and every nation. One person is actually the judge and the jury. And this news of a king is not new. Paul says it's simply the fulfillment of what was already promised. In the Old Testament, God makes it clear that he will establish a descendant of David who will reign on the throne forever. And there were many, of, many kings who were thought to be that chosen descendant. In fact, in Solomon's day, he was regarded as that. He was considered to be in the heyday of the glory days of Solomon. Here is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. But what happened to Solomon? He died and his body remained in the grave. How do we know that Jesus is the eternal king? Well, there are a lot of ways, but his kingship is, is established by his resurrection, Paul says. The moment that Jesus triumphed over death and hell and sin and was raised from the dead is the same moment that God exalted Jesus to his right hand as ruler over the universe. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, I mentioned the book of Romans is going to have some very difficult things to say. And it's going to confront some of our cherished convictions. And it's actually going to be in some ways, in our faces in terms of uh, the moral purity, the holiness of God and what God requires. It's going to talk about some very difficult moral issues. That's why I ask myself, why are you doing this to yourself? Um, but here's the deal. These aren't issues that we get to vote on to determine the rightness or wrongness thereof. There is actually a reigning king who will forever reign who determines the fate of every living person, and what he declares is right, is right. And what he declares as the reigning king is wrong, is actually wrong. It really doesn't matter how we feel about it. It really doesn't matter what we believe ought to be right and wrong. It doesn't matter what, our, I love moms, it doesn't matter what our mom says, it doesn't matter what our dad says, 
It doesn't matter what anybody else says because there is a reigning king who presides over the whole universe. What he says goes. What he says is right is right. What he says is wrong is wrong. And Paul says in verse 5, he's been called and set apart as an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name. In other words, he's, this is not just about teaching theology. Certainly, we're going to learn, we're going to be into a lot of theology. Uh, but this is about, Paul says he's called to bring about obedience, which may call for some of us, as we hear this letter, to make radical changes to the way we live. It may call for some of us to make radical changes to the way we think. Under the kingship of Jesus, you may have to make some changes to the way you think and live as a result of this letter. And I may have to as well. There is an ethical dimension to this letter. However, lest we think that this is a book just about what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing and all about the moral requirements, Paul makes it very clear that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, his sole purpose is not to bring bad news, but good news. That's what the word gospel means. His sole purpose is to bring good news. In a world filled with hundreds of gods, you know, this is the perception of the Roman Empire, there's only one who brings good news. Every other so-called God brings bad news because their message is, if you worship me in the way that I require, if you sacrifice to me in the way that I demand, if you meet all of my religious stipulations, then I will accept you. That's actually very bad news because we will never perfectly, uh, we'll never perfectly worship God or never perfectly fulfill all the obligations that are before us. Um, so that's bad news. Because who could ever worship God in a perfect way? It wasn't good news then, and it's not good news now. The good news of the gospel, though, the mystery that has been promised from the beginning of creation, Genesis 3.15, is that even though we are worse than we ever imagined, even though we're far worse morally than we ever imagined, spiritually as well, and unable to save ourselves, and hopeless of making any real progress on our own. Even in that situation, God loved us and sent His Son. His Son who would do what we could never do, perfectly obey God, satisfy the full requirements of the law, worship God in a perfect way, and would die the death that we deserve, so that by believing on Him, we would be reconciled to God. Paul says he wants to come to Rome to preach the gospel to them, and then he proceeds to write the most beautiful summary of the gospel that's ever been written. Now, it's interesting, and maybe this stood out to you. Maybe you've thought about this as I've been preaching. It's interesting that Paul says he wants to come to Rome to preach the gospel to them because who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who are already in Christ. That's what verse 7 means when Paul says to those who are loved by God and called to be saints. In fact, I actually prefer... I forget which translation it is, but I actually prefer those who are dearly loved by God. I think it's the NIV. That actually really captures the essence. This is a term, it's one Greek phrase used to describe actually fatherly love. And so the whole point is, you have been loved by your father. This is a euphemism for Christians. 
Those who are in Christ, those who are loved by God, called to be saints, Paul says, they are set apart unto God as holy unto the Lord. Paul is writing to Christians. In his terrific commentary on Romans, Frank Thielman writes, it may seem strange that Paul wanted to preach the gospel to people who were already his brothers and sisters in, Christ, in the faith. Although there was nothing amiss in the form of the gospel they believed, they still had pastoral needs that he believed it was his responsibility to address. They needed to hear how the gospel was relevant to the challenges of day-to-day -day life in the context in which they lived. As far as Paul's purpose for writing this book, he wants these Christians in Rome and us, by extension, to know that this good news actually changes everything. Not just at the beginning of our Christian life, but all throughout our entire Christian life. Here's our third point. A regular dose of the gospel is the medicine that God uses to heal, comfort, and change His own people. His own people. If you grew up in a certain tradition, you may be inclined to believe that the gospel is just for non-Christians. It's for unbelievers. In fact, maybe you've heard that your whole life. So why, you would think, why would a Christian need the gospel? Well, it's through the gospel that God actually keeps his own. It's through the gospel that God sanctifies his own, comforts and heals and changes his very own people. Christians actually desperately need the gospel. In fact, it's fair to say in every area of our lives that are maybe characterized by fear or anxiety or self-loathing, self-hatred, uh, confusion about who we truly are, questions about whether or not we're really loved. These are all areas where the gospel has not made deep inroads. These are areas where we need to plead with God to apply those gospel truths to our own hearts. It is by regularly hearing the gospel, the good news of God's rescuing love for us in Christ, God's incredible love for us, that our faith is strengthened and our hearts are moved to joyful obedience. We have to regularly hear the gospel because our hearts are hardwired to accept and receive law. We, we, we really long for justice and we believe that you should get what you deserve and we're all about performance. And when we fail to perform, we fail to obey God's standard, which we do all the time and we know that, we feel it, um, our confidence in God's love for us is shaken. We think, could God really love me? Does God really love me after what I've done? But when we're reminded again and again of his unconditional, performance-free love, his steadfast and faithful love, our faith is strengthened, and then we actually long to obey him. We need to hear, God loves me. You need to hear, God loves you. That's why the most famous kid's song of all time, it's not, I'm a little teacup, right? What does that mean anyway? What's the point? The, famous, the, the most famous kid's song of all is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. A couple of years ago, 
a church planter friend of mine gave me a book that his friend had just written, just published, and it was called Saving the Saved, How Jesus Changes Us from Try-Harder Christianity into a Performance-Free Love. And the whole point of the book is, the more we recognize how deeply loved we are by God in Christ, the more that we understand that God already loves us. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to show that we deserve it. We don't have to prove that we're worth it. The more that we understand that God already loves us if you are in Christ and that that love will never change, the more you will actually be inclined to love him and to serve him and to worship him and to love your neighbor who like you and like me is imperfect. There's so many things that we are so inclined to locate our identity in, our success, you know, our achievements, our job status, our finances, our looks, our athleticism, um, our relationships, our abilities, our friends. We could go on and on. But as two folks from our, our own church are going to sing in just a moment, that's not where our worth comes from, from none of those things. It's from the fact that we have been loved since before the world was made, chosen in Him, bought with a price, and adopted into God's own family as sons and daughters who will never, ever, ever be kicked out. As we continue in Romans, we're going to see with new eyes the depth of God's love for us, the power of His grace and His mercy, and the extravagance of His kindness lavished upon us in Christ. Let's pray.